when we were reading the story of Thomas. What did you think of Thomas? Did you feel sorry for him? That he wasn't there that first time? And another week of sadness and now gone down in history as the doubting Thomas? Or were you angry with him? Saying, well, why wasn't he there that first time? And how could he ask of the Lord Jesus such a thing? Or maybe you were in sympathy with him, saying, well, if I had been in his shoes, you know, could have been me. You can't really blame the guy. Or were you jealous of him? Because he got his doubt addressed by the Lord himself. And he got visible evidence of the Lord's existence and suffering. So for him, well, that was not difficult. But what about me? And when we were reading that story, why did you think it is in the Bible? To make you feel better? I am not a doubter. Or maybe the opposite. At least I'm not the only one who doubts. Or to feel worse. He got to see the Lord. Or to learn something. Not to doubt. Or maybe to learn that even the apostles doubted. Or for you to be warned against doubting. Or maybe not to be too hard on people who doubt. Or to be encouraged. Because even this doubter was reached for by the Lord Jesus. And if we start thinking and meditating on our text and reflecting on all these questions... <clears throat> Why is the story in the Bible and what does it tell us? We also come across the question about whom actually is the story. Is it about Thomas? Or is it maybe about the other disciples who did believe the first time around? Or is it about the Lord Jesus? Or if you look at the last verses of our text, maybe about the people who come later. Such a little story. And so many questions once you start thinking about it. Well, when the Bible tells you a story, it is often helpful to ask yourself three questions. It doesn't always work, but it's often a very good way of getting into the meaning of the story for you and me. And the three simple questions are, what so what? Now what? What? What does the story actually say? So you study the context, the historical background, and maybe the difficulties in the language, and the associations and the connotations that are there with the Old Testament. And you don't have to worry that that's just for theologians. Because often if you just use the footnotes in your study Bible, 
it already gets you a long way. And you will discover that the story is actually, there is a lot more to it than you thought at first glance. And then there is a second question. So what? What are the implications of the story as we have now understood it? What did it tell us about the world, about ourselves, and about God? And then there is the first question, now what? Lastly, what are the consequences that I now draw for my own life from what I just heard? just learned. Are they none? Do I just sit here for this hour, waiting for it to be finished, and let the story sort of waft and warble around my ears, one in, out? Or do I reflect upon it, and then conclude, oh well, no change, carry on. Or do I actually take action? And is there a change in my view, in my behavior, in my attitude? Because the text usually does challenge us. And in every challenge, there is change. You know, you can ask a lot of people whether they want improvements in their life, in their work, somewhere else. And virtually everybody says yes. And if you then waffle on for another two or three sentences just to distract them, and you then ask, do you want change? A significant number of them says no. Because change can be threatening. But you see, you cannot have any improvement without change. And that is the challenge that is there in that last question. Now what? So what do we learn from and do with this story of Thomas? That is the question I will briefly reflect upon this morning. And I would like to summarize the message of this part of God's word for you this morning as follows. The Lord reaches out to Thomases, plural, in doubt. The Lord reaches out to Thomases in doubt. And we note three things. First, there is Thomas and his doubt. And secondly, there is the Lord and his care. And then thirdly, there is we and our response. So the Lord reaches out to Thomases, plural, in doubt. And the first point is Thomas and his doubt. So let's look at this Thomas. Thomas first appears in the New Testament in a list of the apostles when they are called. <coughs> but there is otherwise nothing said about him. There, apart from the fact that he had a nickname, a second name called Didymus, which doesn't mean much, it means the twin. And then he appears thereafter in three places, all in John's Gospel. First in chapter 10 and 11, 
And then in 14, the bit we read, and then in the best-known story, our text this morning. The background to Thomas's first appearance, apart from his calling, you can find in John 10 and 11. And what happens there is that the Lord Jesus had claimed to be one with the Father, that he was the Son of God. You can read it in chapter 10, the verses 30. The conclusion, I think, is uh, in the words of the Jews, maybe in, chap- in verse 33. We are not stoning, because the Jews then want to stone him. We are not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews. These are his miracles. But for the blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. And that was, and still is, a truly astonishing claim. And for the Jewish leaders, and for many people today, it is a very offensive claim. Because if the Lord Jesus is the Son of God, then of course his words are to be heeded, his orders are to be followed, And his claims, also over the life of you and me, are to be accepted. And the Jewish leaders, they didn't like it at all. And therefore they seek to kill him. But Jesus, we read then in the story, whose time has not yet come, leaves Jerusalem. And he goes across the Jordan, the end of chapter 10. But then what happened in chapter 11 is that sometime later Lazarus falls ill. And Lazarus was the Lord's friend. And the Lord Jesus then decides after a few days to return to where Lazarus lived. Now Lazarus lived in Bethphagi, which was a village very close to Jerusalem. It's a couple of miles just across the top of the Mount of Olives. And the disciples warn him that this could be dangerous because of the run-in with the Jewish leaders. They do so in chapter 11, verse 8. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews tried to stone you, and yet you are going back there. But the Lord Jesus persists. And then we hear, for the first time, Thomas speak in chapter 11, verse 16. Let us also go that we may die with him. Let us also go that we may die with him. And when you think about it, Thomas here comes across as, I think, a loyal man. He is loyal to the Lord Jesus, notwithstanding the dangers he anticipates. Also a man not without courage. But it's clear that he doesn't have a very optimistic disposition. He was inclined to take a dim view of the situation, or maybe you should say a realistic, a down-to-earth view. And his somewhat maybe negative or fatalistic comment, come what may, it also indicates that he had not really understood who Jesus was and what his claim was, that he was the Son of God. But then none of the disciples had. 
Now on that occasion of Lazarus raising from the dead for which the Lord returned to the neighborhood of Jerusalem, the Lord not only shows him to be master of life and death, but he also very explicitly declares it. He does so in verse 25. By speaking to Martha, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And then there follows a question to Mary, and also indirectly to us. Do you believe that the Lord Jesus is the resurrection and the life? Because again, and it's an astonishing claim with major consequences. For if you do believe it, you will have eternal life. But if you don't, you won't. It's that simple. Because belief and church are not, a very, are not about very complicated dogmas or rituals and things. It's about a very simple confession, like we re- can read in Mary's confession in verse 27, when she says, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. And then there is another lesson, a similar lesson very shortly thereafter, when Jesus repeats this message in the section that we read, chapter 14, the verses 1 to 7. And he says in chapter 14, the verses 1 to 3, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. (coughs) But then we hear Thomas for the second time. And like in the speech to Mary, the Lord explains again that he will go, that he will die, and so prepare for his people a place in heaven, a life with God. And he had shown them the way to God. They only had to believe in him. Jesus explains that he is the way to God, the way that he had reopened through his suffering and carrying our sins. But Thomas doesn't understand the metaphor. He thought quite common about Jesus as an earthly Messiah, a ruler with a kingdom in the here and now. Again, you could say he is not very perceptive and his thinking takes no great flights of fancy. And we hear him again, Lord, we do not know where you are going, so how can we know the way? And like in the answer to Mary, I am the resurrection and the life, the Lord repeats it. I am the way and the truth and the life. And again, when you reflect upon it, Thomas comes across as a down-to-earth, a very practical man. And what he had heard, it was all a bit too airy-fairy for him. 
He was a man whose mind wasn't inclined to take a flight of fancy or let his imagination run wild with him. And also, again, his question indicates that he hadn't really understood who Jesus was. But then very likely the others didn't either. Because if you read on, it's clear that Philip's, according to the next verses, also didn't. But Thomas is the one who asked the question. Lord, we do not know where you are going, so how can we know the way? He was not afraid to say what was on his mind. And in a way he was asking the question that probably the others were asking themselves. And in a way he is asking the question also on our behalf. And then in our text it had been Easter. And the Lord had died, as he had said. And he had risen, as he had said. And the disciples had seen his death. And they also heard about his resurrection. Because Mary Magdalene had told them. But they found it hard to believe. Well, what does this dying and rising again mean? Well, it means that the Son of God died for our sinners and that he had conquered death and he had reopened the way to God and that he had offered salvation and eternal life in his Father's house. But what did it mean for the disciples at that point in time? Well, no Messiah. That is dead. Jesus had been a threat to the authorities. They'd killed him. Now they are a threat to the disciples, so they're afraid. They're still thinking in the horizontal dimension. Because what matters is proof. And what matters is power. And what matters are the practicalities of the here and now. And what matters is what we see before us. That is how they looked at things. And that is how many people look at faith and Jesus today. But then we read Jesus appears in a human body but not quite like us. And he tells them, Shalom, be well. And then he shows them his side because he had really been dead. And he shows them his hands because he had really been on the cross. And so he reminds them of two things that he was dead and now is he alive and he has risen as only the son of God could and yes it was also the son of God who was crucified as the remnant of the way of his death but as we read Thomas wasn't there and like the disciples hadn't believed Mary Magdalene when she said I have seen the Lord so Thomas does not believe the ten other disciples when they say, we have seen the Lord. Thomas, the down-to-earth, the my thoughts take no flight of fancy. Thomas, the I am not gullible. He says, unless I see and unless I feel and unless I put my hands, I will most certainly not believe. Because Thomas wants proof not hearing that is deceptive and not seeing because it can be illusory but he won't touching 
He wants tangible proof. And I think we recognize that picture. Some of all the features in people around us and maybe at times in ourselves. Not perfect, but close enough. Doubt about the Lord Jesus, his existence, his claims that seem so far-fetched, the Son of God, and his importance, our Savior, was a cross really necessary. Some people want, before they believe, proof, either in the form of some spiritual experience or others they want confirmation of his or God's existence from science or at least refutation of the claims of science to the contrary. There are many Thomases, and we may at times also have a bit of Thomas in us. And in a way, he also asked the questions others were asking themselves, and in a way, he is asking the questions on our behalf. So we heard about Thomas and his doubt. But then our second point is the, re- the Lord reaches out to Thomas's in doubt, and that is in the second place the Lord and his care. Because what we saw was that Thomas was confounded. But now he is called forward. The first time around Thomas was absent. Now much has been made of that. He was not loyal, he was going his own way, he was not in or with the fellowship, he had dropped out of church. It's like missing a good sermon that would have spoken to you, missed out on meeting Jesus. And many admonishing fingers have been waved at Thomas in the commentaries because of his absence. Well, it's true. Going to church is important. You can read it in the letter to the Hebrews. And it is true that you are shortchanging yourself by not going to church. It's like you have a ticket for a show and then you don't go. It's a silly waste. You're missing out. But it's not actually the point of our text here, because Jesus had a message for Thomas. But it's not that he should have been there. Because if we read the story, the first thing that we note is that Jesus knew. He knew of Thomas and his doubts and his exact issues. And people like you and me, we struggle so often with doubts and with our dark thoughts and with our fears in silence, without talking to others who may have a vague inkling or maybe no idea at all. But the Lord knows. All the points that Thomas raised, I do not believe, I need to see his hands with the imprints of the nails, I need to put my fingers there, and I need to put my fist in his side. All these points the Lord addresses. Reach here with your fingers. See my hands. Put your hand in my side, and be not unbelieving. Now that knowing may be threatening or comforting. Threatening because of the idea that there is one who knows all our deepest thoughts. Or comforting, because we're never alone. And here I think the emphasis is on the latter, as we also see how the Lord cares. Because that's the second thing, he not only knew, he also cares. 
He did not leave from us in his doubt, in his somber mood, in his despair about a dead Savior. You see, the disciples' hope was, in the first instance, in a Messiah who would liberate Israel. But that Savior had died. And in a way, Thomas' worst fear had come true. Jesus had gone to the dangerous Jerusalem, about which going Thomas, in his lack of understanding, had such a feeling of foreboding. And as he had warned, the jealous Jews had killed his leader. But Thomas is not left there with these dark thoughts. And Jesus does not come to punish him. There is, in the Lord's speaking, no threat of penalty, no hint of reproach about his absence, and no complaints about the lack of understanding of Jesus' earlier words. Jesus cares, and he comes back a second time. And now Thomas is called forward. He is addressed specifically, and he is told in our text, verse 27, Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And the Lord's message for Thomas is, Thomas, stop being a pistos, unbelieving without faith. The verb used is a present imperative, and it means something like, stop with your unbelief that is currently going on. But on the contrary, because the expression is strongly adversative, on the contrary, Thomas, be or become believing with faith. That was the Lord's objective, and that is why he came back a second time. And that is why he addressed all Thomas's objections and concerns, so that Thomas will have faith. And after Thomas was confounded, and after he was called forward, there is now Thomas's confession. There is, in response to the Lord's care, the confession, the confirmation of Thomas's faith. And it is short. It is powerful and it is complete. My Lord and my God. You see, when people hear the word confession of faith, they often think about lengthy documents with a lot of complicated theology that people have argued over. And indeed, these documents exist. We grow in understanding And when we are confronted with misunderstandings, they are often very useful. So it is rather silly to ignore them and every time to reinvent the wheel or make the same mistake. But they are not to be confused with faith. Because you don't know, you don't have to know them by heart, usefully though it may be. Because faith is simple. And so it is with Thomas. My Lord, and my God. You see, in the first place, Thomas recognized Jesus as God. Theos, Elohim, the maker and the creator of the world. The one who rules it from beginning till end. 
It is actually the first time in the New Testament that anybody directly addresses the Lord Jesus as God. And that witness now stands. And it doesn't matter whether you, I, Dawkins, or anybody else believes it or disbelieves it. That God is the sovereign of this world. That fact doesn't change. The only thing that changes with a confession, with our recognition of that fact, is our own future. And here Thomas recognizes that Jesus, this man that he had been wondering about for three years, is indeed God. The one who is master of life and death. He had understood it before when they went to Lazarus. Let us also go and die with him. And he hadn't understood it after Lazarus was raised from the dead. But now he did. And then in the second place, Thomas recognizes Jesus as Lord. Curios, Yahweh, the covenant Lord. The one who had reached out to Israel to offer them salvation if only they relied on him. The Lord that had reached out to the world to bring forgiveness of sins and to reestablish the relationship with God that, he, that had been disrupted in paradise. The one who through his death was the way to God. Thomas hadn't grasped it earlier. We don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? But now he did know that Jesus was the way, the truth, the light of this world. And then in the third place, he says to Jesus, my Lord and my God. Because Thomas himself believed it and he had faith. He had a personal relationship with Jesus. And yet he knew that Jesus cared for him, had come for him, and was his savior. Tradition has it that Thomas became the apostle outside the Roman Empire. The first church historian, Eusebius, who lived about 250 after Christ, reports that he went to the kingdom of Edessa, the border Turkey, Syria, and Iraq, that area, where he converted the king and so his kingdom. It's not far, actually, from the area where today the Christians are being driven out by ISIS. And according to another old writing, the Acts of Thomas, which dates from about 200 after Christ, he went on from there through northern Mesopotamia and then down south, through what is today Syria and Iraq, to sail in A.D. 52 to Kerala at the west coast of India, where he founded seven congregations, and indeed there still are Christians there today who are called St. Thomas Christians. And according to the tradition, Thomas was martyred in A.D. 72 in Milapur at the east coast of India. Whether this is all true, we don't know. It could be. The Bible itself does not speak of Thomas anymore. His confession, my God and my Lord, is his last and final report. And that was enough. For as we saw, it was the Lord Jesus who in his care for Thomas brought this confession about. 
But then we furthermore see that the care of the Lord Jesus goes further than Thomas. And that brings us to our third and last point. The Lord reaches out to Thomas in doubt. And that is then in the third place, we and our response. We heard that the Lord's objective for Thomas was to have faith. And in his care for Thomas, that lost sheep that was there, he returned to look for Thomas. And Thomas who was confounded, was then called forward, now confessed. And you may well say, well, that's nice, especially for Thomas. But where does it leave us? What are we supposed to do with this story? Well, the story isn't over yet. And it continues in the verses 29 and then in the verses 30 and 31. And in the Bible, it's always worthwhile to look at the context. Verse 29, Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. It's translated as either a question or a statement, but it doesn't really matter all that much. The result is the same. The Lord concludes that Thomas now believes. No longer is he unbelieving. But the Lord also notes that Thomas believed after he saw, like, by the way, the other disciples. And the Lord knows that many others, like you and me, will not have the opportunity to see. And therefore, he already addresses that issue, and he is looking at Thomas, and over his shoulder, he is looking to you and to me. And therefore, he says, blessed are they that have seen and yet have believed. There is no comparison, more or less blessed, just blessed are they. Thomas, in a way, is our witness, the man who needed to be convinced who did not, without some hesitation and some initial doubt, accept that the Lord Jesus was alive and thus had proven himself to be God and Savior. And his testimony, the testimony of this down-to-earth man, is recorded for us to confirm the facts. And then in the verses 30 and 31, the Apostle John repeats for his whole gospel, of course, but also for this immediately preceding story, that it is recorded for a purpose. John made a selection out of all the events of Jesus' life, in fact, fewer than in the other Gospels, with an express goal, an aim in mind. But these things are, have been written so that, with the express, express and explicit purpose, that you may come to or continue to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and so that, believing, you may have life in his name. The story of Thomas is recorded. In fact, it is arranged, orchestrated, put in scene, as it were, so that you may benefit from it. Benefit from it in, may begin to believe or may continue to believe. There is some, bait, some debate about the exact version of the verb used here. But in a way, I think the debate just serves to illustrate that it is both. The witness of Thomas is there so that you may be convinced and remain convinced in the frequent ups and downs of our trust and in the permanent renewal of our faith. 
The story about the doubting Thomas is a testimony and a support to others who at times are confounded and may find it difficult to believe. And through this testimony, the Lord Jesus calls each and all of you here present, whether you knew it when you walked in or not, and whether you like it now you have heard it or not, to come forward to join Thomas in believing. Tonight the Lord Jesus as your God and Savior. And John confirms, this is the point of the gospel. To call people and for them to come and have life. To call you and for you to come and to have Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus calls you forward to look at the side. He had been truly dead. And to look at his hands. He did not pass quietly away in his sleep. It was on the cross. It was for our sins. And to look at him alive. Because he is the risen Savior. Not a good man doing good deeds, giving a good example. But the Son of God who came down to earth to be your Savior. So briefly then and in closing, let us return to the three questions of the beginning. What, so what, now what? What? What happened? Well, there was this man, Thomas, and Thomas was confounded, and by the death of his beloved master, he was in darkness. And as a matter of fact, the reality, as he saw before it for his own eyes, it was all over. The master was dead, and that was the end of it. Stories about the resurrection. Thomas could not believe it. He lived a pistols, without faith, like we at times may live in doubt. And then he was called forward by the Lord. The risen Lord who had come back in his care for him. The down-to-earth, the realistic, the my thoughts take no flights of fancy Thomas. He sees the facts, the evidence, the reality of the risen Lord Jesus. The risen Jesus as he was before Thomas him, saw him as he was when Thomas saw him, and as he still is today. And Thomas confessed, my Lord and my God. And then so what? What does it mean for you and me today? Jesus was and is God, the sovereign ruler of this world and everything in it, including our own lives. And that is indeed how John started his gospel in the verses 1 to 4 of chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of man. Many people don't believe it, one reason as another. And John knew it. We can read it in the verses 9 to 11. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to, with, to that which was his own, 
but his own did not receive him. But the fact that Jesus is God does not change, whether we believe it or not. That is what Thomas's witness means. And Jesus is our covenant Lord, our Savior, if we believe in him. John had already said it in chapter 1, verse 12. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And then in chapter 3, verse 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. The Lord came, and he makes you his offer of grace. And he even lined up Thomas as a doubter to ask the awkward questions that the others and maybe we don't dare to ask. And the story, says John, was recorded so that you may believe. And the fact of his offer of grace does not change either, whether you believe it or not. That only change your own, changes your own fate and future. As John indeed continues to say in that chapter 3, verse 18, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. And this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but man has loved darkness instead of light. That is what Thomas's witness means. And then the last question now, what? What do we do? What do you do? This is written for you and me so that we may believe. That is how our section closes. Do you walk away out of here and leave him, as it were, standing here showing you his hands? Or do you continue to wait then waver and debate and doubt? Or are you coming forward to be not an unbeliever, one without faith, but as a believer, as it says in the old hymn, just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me to come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Just as I am, though tossed about with many a conflict, many a doubt, and fightings and fears within, without, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Just as I am, thy love unknown has broken every barrier down, now to be thine, Yea, thine alone, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. <coughs> Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Amen.